I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are looking at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And as I was preparing for this, I learned a little bit about how this is so central to kind of Matthew's agenda, from what I understand. And so I'm going to have uh, Alan kind of talk about these these issues from his perspective. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson this week recounts a familiar episode from Jesus' life, Peter's confession of faith in him. But by this point, we should probably not be surprised that Matthew has thoroughly reshaped the story to reflect his own theological concerns. And here, one of the main concerns is that he wants to show Peter as someone who plays a significant role in the founding of mm-hmm. the church. And, and that's one that I think has come through to us in kind of assumption, um, but isn't necessarily in all the Gospels. Well, it's, a, it's something with Matthew, and, and it's unique yeah. to Matthew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the background to this? Well, you know, we've already seen some of this go on at the level of the discourses in Matthew. Um, um, and here in this story, he does the same thing as he does and as he's done in some of the discourses. He uses Mark as a source, mm-hmm. along with what was very likely some early tradition, combined with his own composition to create this very unique version of the story of Peter's confession. And specifically, Matthew 16, 17 through 19, where Jesus addresses Peter, has no parallel in the gospel tradition outside of Matthew. Mm. Um, now, there's some similar kind of things that go on in the Christian tradition, but, but not in the canonical gospel tradition. Mm. While, and while the saying about binding and loosing um, that, mm-hmm. that Jesus addresses to Peter specifically in, in this section has parallels in Matthew 18, 18 and in John 20, 23, and thus may reflect a tradition that predates Matthew's gospel. The rest of the material most certainly originated later. Language like my church and the keys and things like this uh, at a mm-hmm. time when apparently it was important for the church to emphasize the apostles as the foundation for mm-hmm. the church. And so, you know, we see this theme in the New Testament emerging in contrast to false teachings that threatened the still-forming church of the first mm. century. Mm. And perhaps yeah. Matthew was, was, was addressing some of that. You know, you know when, I, when I read that, I did not pick up on that. But as you went through it, I thought, oh, yes, these ideas, my church, the keys, mm. some things that um, are, are likely unique to that time and place that Matthew wrote it. Unique to Matthew's gospel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so how does this all begin? So Matthew's account begins with his reworked version of Mark's narrative. Uh, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's Matthew 16, 13 through 16. And with, with the exception of a few changes and, and additions, that's basically the same as Mark's narrative of this story. Um, the location of this event at or near Caesarea Philippi, which was about 20 mm-hmm. miles north of the Sea of Galilee, is maintained by Matthew. But interestingly, it's dropped by Luke. Huh. Jesus' question about the perception of the people, and here the word is 
anthropoi used as a generalizing uh, reference. Who do men say that I am? But it's translated mm-hmm. as people uh, as a generalizing reference. And I've mentioned that to distinguish it. It's not, it's not laos as the Jewish people, but just people in general. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, this question about the perception of people in general introduces the contrast between the crowds who do not understand his, who he is, and they certainly don't understand mm-hmm. his self-reference as son of man, uh, with the disciples who have already witnessed the heavenly voice at Jesus' baptism, for example, mm-hmm. as well as receiving Jesus' own declarations about himself as the son of man, especially in Matthew ten twenty-three, when he talks about um, you will not make the you will not complete your journey of of um carrying you know carrying the message of the of the kingdom until the son of man comes and so they've already there've already been some some specific instructions to the disciples that refer to himself as the son of man oh, you know this 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 terminology son of man we are used to it in um the church tradition but how how is that understood to these folks um, well, the, the people, the answer is that the people didn't understand Son of Man because Son of Man wasn't a, a term used for the Messiah at all. And uh, it likely, as we've talked before, um, originates with Daniel 7, where Daniel says he saw a vision of one like a Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days and receiving authority and a kingdom that will have no end. And so Jesus adopts the Son of Man Partly in, in one way of, of, uh, of indicating that his authority is greater than what they expected from a typical Messiah, but partly mm-hmm. to avoid their expectations about who a Messiah would be and what a Messiah would do. Ah, sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, good point. Uh, so, I mean, what is their their view of Jesus as a whole then? Is it, well, the yeah. general view among the people was a high one since prophets were not only honored in, Jeru- in Judaism, but also by Matthew's community. And all of these individuals, John the Baptist, um, um, Elijah, Jeremiah, would, see, would be seen to have been resurrected in some way if Jesus embodied them. But for Matthew's gospel and in the early church as a whole, this the idea that Jesus was a prophet was insufficient. Now, why Matthew singles out Jeremiah as one of the prophets the people thought may have been resurrected in Jesus is impossible mm-hmm. to explain. Only Matthew does it, and, and it's just, <laughs> why did he pick Jeremiah? Uh, who knows? Uh, oh, who knows? But Matthew only does yeah. it. Yeah, Matthew only, only Matthew does it. But what is important in this connection is that Matthew doesn't even mention here the most positive title the crowds have used for Jesus up to this point in the narrative, mm. son of David. Could this be the son of David, they ask in Matthew 12, 23. And also, this is the, phrase, this is the term that uh, the blind man in Matthew 9, 27, and the Canaanite woman that we saw last week in Matthew 15, 22, approach called Jesus, son of That's David. That's right. You know? That's right. So, mm-hmm. so the, Matthew doesn't even mention this because um, even though Matthew speaks of Jesus as the son of David, and that plays a role to some extent in Matthew's, especially in Matthew's um, um, infancy narratives, um, uh, it really doesn't show up a whole lot later as a positive term for Jesus. And so it's, there's something more that Matthew is going to stress here. Mm, mm. So now Jesus, though, doesn't say, I am the son of man no. or son of David. He says, who have, he asked them. 
Right. You know, who do you he, say that I am? He right? asked them, who do you say that I am? But actually, the you there is plural and emphatic. And ah, so the point. NIV says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And so they kind of, that's, that's not, you know, that's, they, they add that sort of extra, but what mm. about you? Um, to reflect the fact that, that humais um, is emphatic in the Greek text. Oh, the Greek text what, what is... Do you think, what do you think about that? Do you like that addition? Yes, I do, yeah. Yes, I do like that um, because I think it's, I think it's accurate. Who do you say that I am, basically, is a literal translation. But the, it doesn't really reflect the construction of the Greek, which places the humais in an emphatic position. And, and mm. so I like the way the NIV puts it, at, tr- puts it and I think they, they do a good job here. And uh, similarly, Phillips and the Good News Translation and the Message, the CEB and Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone also take a similar approach. And that... You know, he, he asked them the question, so puts it back on them. But what about you? Who do you say that I am to mm-hmm. articulate their understanding of his mm-hmm. identity? Now, Simon Peter, and notice um, his name as Simon Peter only, only occurs here and in Matthew 4.18 and in Matthew 10.2. And, and Matthew 10.2 is important for our later discussion. Answers on behalf of the group. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In verse 16. And you know, we've previously discussed the fact that Mark's gospel simply states, You're the Messiah, uh, because mm-hmm. no human witness in his gospel affirms Jesus as the Son of God until right. the cross. But nevertheless, the affirmation of Jesus as Messiah is climactic at that point in Mark's gospel and singles out Peter. Now, mm-hmm. while this is the first affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah by one of the characters in the narrative of Matthew's gospel, while, on the other hand, Christ, Matthew has used Messiah or Christos in an important way in his own narration of Jesus' story up to this point. I find it ironical that in Matthew's gospel, where this episode has been revised to highlight Peter's role in the founding of the church, Peter's affirmation, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Son of the living God is nothing more than the others have already confessed oh. about him. Right? right, we saw that in the episode where he was walking on the water. When he right. got in the boat, they worshipped him and uh, called him right. the Son of God, and also they had witnessed the baptism where he was he was called God's Son. Uh, Jesus' self identification as the Son, you know, no one knows the Father mm-hmm. except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him in Matthew eleven twenty seven, and we'll see it shortly in the Transfiguration in Matthew seventeen fourteen. Mm-hmm. So while it is significant, Peter's confession doesn't uh, that uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God, doesn't really distinguish him in any way from the disciples as a whole, which I find ironic because the whole point of Matthew's sort of reworking of this passage is to call attention to Peter's unique role in the founding of the church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk more about this role of Jesus, particularly how Matthew is presenting it. Yeah, so in the synoptic gospel tradition, in Mark and Luke especially, the focus of this story is completely on Jesus. It's mm-hmm. all about the confession of faith in Jesus and who Jesus mm-hmm. is. But in Matthew's version of this story, the focus shifts from Jesus at this point to Peter, who is not only the typical disciple, as we saw in the episode of The Walking on the Water, where he gets out of the boat and he falters, and you know we see him as being typical of the those of little faith who 
constitute not only the band of disciples, but also, also Matthew's church. So Peter's not only the typical disciple, but he's also the apostle who plays a unique and unrepeatable role in the founding of the early church, especially in the eyes of Matthew's community. Uh, yeah. And we might compare this with the role that the beloved disciple played right. for the Johannine community and the role right. that Paul played for the churches under his influence. Here's the thing that's coming to my mind here is, does Matthew's community then kind of accept this as a fact piece about Peter's identity, just as the Johannine community accepted the beloved disciple? I mean, yes. and that's going to impact, <laughs> right? That's going to impact. That's going to impact the early church. It's going to impact yeah. the history of the church in general. Yes, because mm -hmm. of the role of mm -hmm. Matthew's gospel in the church. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I will, I will say at this point that Ulrich Lutz in his uh, commentary on Matthew in the second volume in Matthew 8 through 20 uh, de devotes an extensive uh, amount of attention to addressing this whole question of Peter in the history of the church and even today in light of, mm. of the New Testament in, in this passage. And mm. if, if that's something that you're interested in, I would, I would highly commend it. It's in the Hermonia series. It's a, it's a really extensive <laughs> treatment of this. Interesting. Well, I will talk about how the Re Reformation deals with this as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as you can imagine, this is kind of a big deal in yes, the Reformation of course, tradition. Of course, so, of course. Uh, but we'll get there. But yeah, it, it, I, it is interesting to think how this impacts the identity of the early church. Yep. But I, but I really hadn't thought about it in comparison to the, the Johannine community. Well, it's, it's only in Matthew's gospel that Jesus responds to Peter's confession with a blessing. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood mm -hmm. has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, in Matthew 16, 17. But you just said something there. It's only in Matthew's gospel. This is only in Matthew's about, gospel. We've talked about Matthew's gospel as being kind of the crowning gospel for our general knowledge about about the New Testament. Well, I mean, that, it became the predominant. It became the first among the mm -hmm. gospels in the early mm -hmm. church, and and even even to the extent that you know the Augustinian hypothesis was that Matthew wrote his gospel first, and and then Mark, right. Mark and Luke followed him, right. and, but but it was it was the preeminent gospel in in the early church mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and so it had it exercised a great deal of influence yeah so the influence yeah yeah mm -hmm. all right well let's move on now it's been tempting to read this beatitude as a special blessing on peter we must remember that Je jesus has given a similar blessing to all the disciples in in matthew 13 16 in contrast to the crowds who jesus says have ears, but they cannot hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. And they're unable to understand the message of the kingdom. He says to the disciples, mm. blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Mm, wow, that's cool. I hadn't noticed that. And I think another, another um, comparable uh, passage in Matthew is, is the one about the, the revealing. In, in Matthew eleven twenty five through 27, Jesus has declared that the message of the kingdom has been hidden by God to, from the wise... And here, this is comparable to to the com to the statement about flesh and blood, but it's revealed only by Jesus to those to whom He chooses to reveal to reveal it. And and again, while Matthew singles out Peter here and likely composed this verse himself, mm -hmm. that's important. This is something that Matthew. Th this is not likely something that came from from Jesus, but something that Matthew composed. Um, 
And, and while Matthew composes this verse to single out Peter here, what has been revealed to him has already been revealed to all the disciples mm-hmm. that Jesus is the Son of God, yeah. right? Yeah, they've, they've all confessed absolutely. it already. So we, this is right. a dynamic that we should, we, we're going to need to point, uh, keep in mind as we go through this passage. Peter plays this unique role, but at the same time, you know, the, the things that Peter does, the things that Peter says, these are things that the other disciples do and say as well. I think what that's really, really important because this passage tends to be one of those passages that's kind of never put in context. It's just taken as a soundbite. Mm-hmm. But when you think about that, this whole broader thing has gone on with Jesus's identity by the other apostles. This is a this changes its tone a little bit. I think it does, but but it doesn't diminish the fact that you know this is not something most Protestants want to hear. Matthew attributes to Peter. Uh, a unique role in the founding yeah. of the church. And, right. and so, it's, like I said, it's a little bit on a par with Paul and his churches or the beloved disciple with the Johannine community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, you know, because of the later history, we don't, you know, those of us in the Protestant tradition don't want to hear that, but the, there's no getting around the fact that Matthew attributes to Peter a unique role in the founding of the church. Uh, yeah, and and I my my question is why? Yep. Well, why does why does Matthew want to do this? We'll get so, to that. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Hang on to that. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, moving on. Yeah. So at the same time, then you know, even though Matthew has already you know um, re- recounted for us the fact that the disciples as a whole have worshipped Jesus as the Son of God, Matthew proceeds to craft a statement that singles out. Peter's unique role in the founding of the church in verses 18 and 19. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. Now, the first part of this statement is likely also a composition of Matthew's. Uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Um, it, it most certainly does not go back to Jesus, giving the language, given the language about building my church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and even the word ecclesia only occurs here and in Matthew 18, 17, in the entire canonical gospel tradition. Now, so, so again, we need to, to put it in a broader New Te- Testament context. The concern with building the church as a new temple is something that was characteristic of the apostolic church. Uh, we find Paul referring to Peter, James, and John as the pillars on which the church was founded in Galatians 2. Or, or Paul talks about Christ as the foundation and People build on that foundation using either precious materials or materials that are easily consumed by fire. Uh, And and he talks as as well about the gifts of the Spirit as being for building up the body of Christ. Um, or, Or in Ephesians, he talks about the prophets and the apostles as the foundation for the church. And in Peter, we also have this this concept where where Peter quotes the 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 um, the stone which the builders rejected, the re- rejected stone, right. to talk about how the church is a, a, is being built into a new temple. 
So, so this idea of the building the church as the new temple was something that was characteristic of the apostolic church, and from there was developed in the early in the early church in the in the patristic era. From Matthew's perspective, then the purpose of this whole section, which includes their withdrawal from Jewish mm-hmm. territory, is so that Jesus could build a new community that is separate from Israel. Wow! So this is something that's really significant in Matthew's. In Matthew's yeah. gospel, because Matthew has, you know, it's so funny because people think of Matthew as the Jewish gospel, and Matt, but Matthew has the most, perhaps the most um, critical view of the Jewish people and their leaders of that day, of all the mm-hmm. gospels, and, um, yeah. and 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 Matthew is is the one is the one that that frames stories in the gospel, and this isn't the only one we'll see, but he frames stories in the gospel. Um, to to highlight Jesus uh, building a new community that is separate from mm-hmm. Israel. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow. So I want to go back to more questions about this whole idea of Peter and this idea of rock. Mm-hmm. So we all know probably that there's a play on word between Peter's name in Greek, Petros, and the rock upon which Matthew's Jesus promises to build his church. Petra is the word. And, of course, it's obscured in most English translations. Among the notable exceptions, however, the the Good News translation attempts to make this play on words more explicit. Uh, It reads, And so I tell you, Peter, you are a rock, and on this rock foundation... I will build my church. That's Matthew 16, 18 mm-hmm. in the Good News translation. Phillips and the message and Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone does something similar. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we, we should know at this point in the game that, that the purpose of this saying is not to confer the name Peter on him. Jesus gave him the name, uh, according to John's gospel, at the very beginning of his mm-hmm. uh, encounter with, with him but rather to interpret the significance of the name in terms of his foundational role mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it seems fairly clear that somehow Peter is playing a foundational role um, in, in the early church. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. sort of, that's sort of, therein lies the rub, says the bard, right? And, and, and the history of the church has been an extensive debate about this surprising mm-hmm. declaration. Uh, of course, early papal decrees, and then in the theology of the Roman Catholic Church generally since the Reformation, this passage has been used to insist that Peter himself was the rock upon which Jesus mm-hmm. intended to build his church and that he passed this role to the bishops of Rome. But what we, what we may not realize is that this was not the only view in the Roman Catholic Church prior to the Reformation. The idea that the rock was either Peter's faith or specifically his confession about Jesus, was Mm -hmm. widely held by church fathers in the eastern part of the church, uh, like Origen, Mm -hmm. Tertullian, Eusebius, and Chrysostom. And in the western part of the church, the interpretation of Augustine became predominant. Jesus himself Mm -hmm. is the rock upon which the church is to be built. And in fact, Ulrich Lutz claims that this view was exclusively the one advocated in the Western Church during the Middle Ages, at least in commentaries. He, he, mm-hmm. he, um, he says, basically, I scarcely am aware of a commentary that does not advocate this Augustinian view, mm-hmm. either alone or with the Eastern ter- interpretation of the rock as faith. Um, and, and he says, it's amazing because in the, in the medieval commentaries uh, uh, of the West, one also... Uh, expects the papal interpretation, right, that, that Peter is the rock. Yeah. But 
there are only a few scattered traces of it, and 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 they either show up in in the sense that the Augustinian interpretation that Jesus is the rock serves as the right. basis um, to polemicize against the idea that Peter was a rock to argue right. against it, right, right, or um, theologians who are more friendly to the idea that the Pope, you know, was that Peter was the first Pope. Um, may try to add this idea that Peter was the rock to Jesus as the rock as a secondary interpretation. So, you know, from his extensive survey of medieval commentaries, um, it seems like Lutz was surprised that um, he expected to find it more, and he didn't. And so that, I think, is something right. that probably comes as news to most of us. Most of us probably assume that from the early days of the church, right. um, from the time that there was a pope, um, uh, that, the, that, the, that was the argument. That was the argument, and, and it was not. The Augustinian view that Jesus was the rock upon which the church was to be built was actually the predominant view in the West uh, in the Middle Ages prior to the Reformation. Well, it, it, it actually makes sense with in terms of the development of the divine right of kings within the context of what and that while that while that theory doesn't come into fruition actually into quite later those ideas really begin to foment really in the late middle ages and towards the reformation so it makes sense that they're gonna they're gonna apply this to the church later um so an interesting it's kind of an interesting space mm -hmm. there that I, I i would say commentaries versus papal the, decrees what i would yeah well i was gonna say commentaries versus what you know you were talking in terms of of secular literature on power that's coming mm. out and so the roman catholic church is i've seen this a lot in the commentaries um which tend to want to keep this more religious tone and then versus the actual reality that the the western church the, the roman catholic church is a is a political player mm -hmm. so that's becomes that becomes part of the kind of secular mm. if you will theorized uh, uh, justification for the power of the pope mm. wow yeah mm -hmm. yeah so then so, the, the promise of stability and permanence for the church that Jesus was building is reinforced by the assurance that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And imagery surrounding the gates of Hades is extensive and difficult. It's uh, quite mm -hmm. a complicated image. Most people interpret it these days with reference to a notion of hell as the place of punishment for the wicked dead. But that is not the reference to Hades in the Bible. It refers mm -hmm. to the place of the dead. And the image here likely refers to death as something humans cannot overcome, but which will not overcome or perhaps even gain the upper hand over the church. In other words, the church is promised imperishable permanence as long as this age exists. Um, mm -hmm. um, that's quoting a scholar named Schmidt. And actually, Karl Barth also endorses this idea that that's mm -hmm. what the point of this is. It's, you know, the, Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age in Matthew 28, 20. And so uh, if Jesus is with us, then then no one can prevail against us, you know, is the right, idea. Right, right, right. Um, so, and then, of course, he doesn't end there because there's the whole, the whole keys of the kingdom. Right, right. Discussion. 
And so Matthew continues to embellish Peter's foundational role in the church by citing what seems to be an old tradition along with his own formulation about what it means. The tradition is the statement about binding and loosing. His own formulation is the statement about the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's verse 19. Mm -hmm. Now, as I said before, the statement about binding and loosing is also found in Matthew 18, 18, although there it is in the plural and refers to the whole church. Uh Uh Here it's in the singular and clearly refers to Peter. A similar statement is found in John 20, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And again, Mm -hmm. that's spoken to the disciples as a whole. So now this has also been traditionally thought to refer to Peter as the gatekeeper at the entrance to heaven. Mm -hmm. But the idea of binding and loosing in a Jewish context refers to authoritative interpretations of the Torah. And so I think it's better to see this as a reference to the idea that by teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, which is the commission that Jesus gives to all the disciples, Peter in particular is viewed by Matthew as playing a role in the establishment of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in the development of the, the church in the early post-apostolic era, that, that role would later be attributed to the apostles as a whole and then to the New Testament. Uh, so the foundation mm-hmm. uh, becomes the apostles the, the apostolic witness as a whole, right, right, and which then right. becomes transferred to the New Testament. But that this unique role is attributed to Peter here is demonstrated clearly by the singular you throughout. The statement is addressed to Peter alone. You is not right. plural here, it's singular. So while Peter may have exercised a certain influence over a region of the first century church, some suggest maybe Syria or Antioch, like the beloved mm-hmm. disciple and Paul, In the early post-apostolic age, his role as the unique founder of the church became much more prominent. Some of the the early literature of the patristic era focuses more on Peter, particularly Mm -hmm. as the one who is the foundation of the church. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But again, we have to recall that this role of binding and loosing through teaching is an authority that Jesus will give to all of his disciples in that great commission in Matthew 28, and that the whole church will exercise according to Matthew 18. So, you know, the, the authority of the keys is not Peter's alone. It, it is Peter's uniquely in a certain sense, but it is also the same authority that is given to the disciples right. as a whole and to right. the church as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly, as you've said, Peter's drawn out here. P- Peter, Matthew's giving Peter this specific role. And, and, I think if, if, if we go around and we ask people, Peter, they're like, oh, they'd be able to recognize this, mm-hmm. this from the, from, from Matthew and, and they'd be able to articulate it. So, yeah, I, um, I mean, you've put it into some new context for me, but I, I think you're right that this is definitely a, an affirmation of Peter's central role in the. Well, and, and again, you know, this, this stems from a time when it seems that it was important to stress, um, the apostles as the foundation for the church, perhaps in mm-hmm. contrast to opposition from false teaching. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it seems that, you know, Peter is the one who, even in some of Paul's letters, even, and even in, some of the, even in the New Testament era, there's some references to him who seems to play a particular role because of his connection to Jesus. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that brings us back to the idea that, you know, 
it was it was really Peter's faith. It was Peter's confession. It was Jesus Himself who was the ultimate foundation. And and Peter, you know, plays particular. Per, Perhaps Peter plays a unique role in, in representing this faith or in unifying this faith or in, or in, or in promoting this faith uh, as, as mm-hmm. perhaps um, one of the chief among the apostles in terms of his influence in the early church. Uh, mm-hmm. But we, mm-hmm. we come back to the idea that the, the, that the role that Peter plays, while it's a unique one, is one that is also uh, attributed to all of the other disciples the as well as the whole yep, church. Yeah, that's fair. Yep. And so how does this conclude? Well, Matthew concludes his story by returning to his mark and source. Then he sternly Mm -hmm. ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah in verse 20. In Mark, this statement has a very different implication than it does here, right? Because in Mark, you know, we they still don't, there's still still no confession of Jesus as son of God, and they still really don't get who Jesus is as the Messiah. Right. Right. In Matthew's version of the story, it reinforces the notion that the disciples are the ones who know that Jesus is the Messiah, in contrast to the crowds right. whose speculations fall short of that. And because of this, then, they are the core of the new community that Jesus is gathering, according to Matthew's interpretation. And that, that theme is going to continue uh, in Matthew's gospel. Wow. Yeah. Well, gosh, this has been wonderful. I, I feel like um, I just have some different... Uh, some some different tools in which to understand this scripture. So thank cool. you. Cool. All right. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to take a look at uh, what the Reformers had to say about this passage, and I'm sure we're not going to be surprised that it made quite a splash in the in that age. <laughs> Right, right. So, of course, I was really excited to look at how the Reformers um, used this passage. And because it was, at least in, in the popular culture, a cornerstone for the authority of the Pope. And as Alan pointed out, the medieval church maybe didn't do this. But by the time you hit the Reformation and by the time you hit Luther, who's confronting the problems of the church, you are having the church use this as proof text for the authority of the Pope. This idea of you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. So here, um, as I said, this proof text becomes one of the big issues for the reformers. But before we hit that, I wanna step back and look at how the reformers enter the passage because they seem to be more aware of its context than sometimes we get, which I think here is because they're using because they feel that the Roman Catholics aren't using, aren't putting it into context. So, um, and they're fully aware that in entering this, the disciples have not yet discerned who Jesus really is. Um, and so they recognize that with Simon Peter's confession that Jesus is Christ, the son of God. Um, and they see this as a turning point in Matthew's, um, in Matthew's gospel. That's interesting because, you know, I think it's much more, it plays that role much more in, in, um, in Mark than it does in Matthew, at least in terms of Christological terms. Now, you know, what I'm, right. what I'm picking up is that in Matthew's gospel, the, the, pit, the turning point is more the turn to the church, that, that, that mm-hmm. Jesus is, is directing his attention more toward uh, building a new community. Well, and I think what you're seeing here is still that molding together of the Gospels, particularly in Mark. So that's probably how we can explain that. They're, even though 
they're starting some of that single gospel kind of exegesis. They're still, it's still mashing together. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we're seeing. That's what I would think. Um, so uh, to set up today's pivotal scripture, the Reformers viewed the tests of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as really a backdrop for the Christological affirmation that Peter will give him. Um, the Reformers juxtaposed this challenge by them with the actual signs that Christ had given. And so Calvin talks about the leaven and uses this word to explain the growth um, of perhaps the good as was used by Christ or the evil as was done by the Pharisees. So in other words, the leaven in itself wasn't a ah, good term um, it was neutral. necessarily. Neutral term, yeah. So it doesn't have... Um, I think sometimes we think of leaven in a positive connotation, but for Calvin, it said it's it's basically a neutral a neutral term. Well, biblically, and, uh, biblically, leaven was 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 not good. It was a it was a symbol of corruption, and corruption, so it, that's yeah. why that's why it's fascinating that Jesus you know has this parable of the leaven in the dough where it's a positive thing, right? But then right, he says right. he speaks he warns them against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is their teachings. Right. Yeah, and so Calvin says, look. We have to judge what we're seeing on who Christ is and the simplicity of Christ. So I, th- I thought that was pretty modern. Mm. And it, that sits as a backdrop for today's passage, as Christ is able to draw out the fishes and the loaves, a sign that reflected Christ's simplicity and his care for people. In other words, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were looking for Jesus to create omens or portents, in other words, kind of supernatural miracles to, to demonstrate she, his or to validate his claims right yeah. instead of miracles that focus on people mm-hmm. so the reformers that enter the passage for today within the context of christ's true identity and sub- subsequently the true foundation of the church so remember that they are entering with this mindset that counters the roman mission as peter as the rock so they're that that mindset, and as I said, we may be challenged by what what Alan introduced from um, from Dr. Lutz. But I think what's really interesting there is that at least by the time you get to the Reformation, that was pretty well an assumption. So what you know in the in the in the fourteen hundreds. So for example, here the purpose of clarifying the error was to assert that Christ is the rock of the church. Um, George Close, and this is a a character we know very little about, which is wonderful about history sometimes. All we know is that he's a Protestant preacher, English preacher. We know nothing about him, but there's a short, there's a small group of sermons that are published of his. So we have this kind of Protestant uh, preacher, and we just have a few sermons. So I can't give you much background about him. But his title is this, The Rock of Religion, Christ, Not Peter. Mm-hmm, yeah. So... If indeed there was other ideas in the church going on, it by the time at least in his congregation, that was the assumption that that Peter was assumed to be the rock of the church. Okay, so and in his thing, it, he claims it is not a, that this is not enough. This to emphasize the point, and Calvin goes further, indicating that in identifying Christ as the foundation, that it implies not only the everlasting kingdom of a Christ who is here and now and a living God who can quote, uphold supply and enrich us with every description of blessings. Mm. And, you know, I find it, it's not surprising because that's essentially the Augustinian view. And and I'm I'm not surprised that Calvin would, would, would go there because Calvin is, follows August Augustine in a a lot of ways. 
Right. So that's, and so we have, yeah, absolutely. He he's goes there. Mm -hmm. So I want, I, and I think what we see here is often what we see in the church now. We have deep theologians who are looking back at this great theological history and they're reading scripture. And then we have the popular cultural assumption about it. Right. So I think you're seeing kind of two different levels of mm -hmm. understanding. So I want to jump back into one of the main questions, which is what does Jesus mean by rock <laughs> itself? And so first, um, that rock means Peter's confession, which is one Alan alluded to. Um, and it is said by, and so re, some of the reformers have picked on to that rock equals confession. Um, and English, early English reformer William Tyndale um, that the confession that Jesus is the Son of God is the true confession of all Christians, and therefore every Christian man and woman is a, quote, Peter. Mm. thought that was interesting. Yeah. And I love that he had men and women in there. It made him very liberal. There you go. <laughs> and I think what is interesting in Tyndale's comments is that there is so much emphasis on true Christians and really the weight that true Christians carry because of the place of false prophets. Mm. Now, I wanted to tell you a little about Tyndale. Um, and you probably know that name. He's an early reformer, uh, kind of a contemporary of Luther, just, just a few years younger. Um, and uh, he's known for writing the Tyndale Bible, which is an English translation. And it's really the first English translation that was heavily influenced by human, human scholarship in Hebrew and Greek. And Alan can tell you more, but from what I understand from this Bible come some of the phrases that we use in English that are um, as words that are translated from Greek are often often used by the things he developed. Um, so things like atonement, for example, mm -hmm. is a Tyndale creation, English creation. So there's a lot of those. I think there's quite a few errors still in this Bible. I know he relies heavily on Erasmus's Greek New Testament, but it's still really the first English version, which is kind of significant in England because after um, John Wycliffe and his Bible, it was really illegal to have scripture in English in England. So while there were several vernaculars going on on, on the mainland of Europe, there weren't in English. So for him to, to write this and to translate this was really quite a big step mm. um, in England. And so ultimately, of course, within the craziness of, of English history, he's actually executed by Henry VIII for not supporting his divorce. <laughs> um, and uh, so he dies young, and it would be interesting to see what would have happened to him had he lived longer. So, um, so moving on, um, Heinrich Bullinger, and remember, he's the one that um, takes over for Zwingli in Zurich. Um, for him, the rock is reference to faith. According to Bullinger, it, it is that faith that is the foundation of the Church of God, and that only Christ is the rock of the Church. As Bullinger points out, the verse does not say, I will build my rock on you, but rather upon a rock, the, quote, self-same rock that you have confessed. So Bullinger faith, um, Tyndale here talks about um, um, confession. So those are kind of the two positions that I saw for rock. So now I want to turn to this idea of key, keys of the kingdom and the Reformation understanding of this part of the passage. And for Martin Chemnitz, um, and he's a Lutheran reformer, by the way. Um, he was known for his Reformation work in Wolfenbüttel, where I did a lot of my research. Um, 
And so for him, the keys of the kingdom refer to preaching of the gospel and that these have been entrusted to the ministers of the word. And as those entrusted to this task, they are to confer the word in a means that strengthens the faith, their faith and that of others. He also comments that the keys should be an entry point into the faith and thus preaching. That's somewhat similar to, you know, what, what I was talking about with, um, with um, Peter's role um, along with mm-hmm. the other disciples in teaching the things that Jesus had commanded them. Right, right. Now, I want you to think about, at least within the Reformation, how this contrasts with the Roman Catholic view of the passage. And it is no surprise that the seeming attack on the, of the Protestants regarding the meaning of this passage is handled in a direct response from the Roman Catholics. So, as Alan's pointing out, if they are not dealing with this in the Middle Ages, they are dealing with it in the Reformation. And we've been, I've introduced you to this, um, this uh, Catholic Reformation scholar before, Wanda, um, Wanda Maldonado, and he's, he in particular is, is well known for his writing kind of um, against, if you will, or, or the Reformation views and or, if you will, as an apologetic for the Roman Catholics. And so he argues that their argument against the Protestant interpretation is that if they don't recognize Peter as the one that holds the keys, then it gives him nothing. In other words, why would Matthew even talk about it? Mm. And not only do they argue that Peter is given the keys, but that he has given Peter more than to any other apostle. Uh, And And in this, he gave Peter the power of binding and losing which we just talked about. He then divides the power of teaching given to the disciples as different than the powers of the keys given to Peter. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's some, there's some who would point the idea that especially in Matthew 18, you know, the, the, the the power binding and loosing is one of um, sort of almost um, um, handing down an authoritative ruling Kind of like mm-hmm. you know, within the Jewish context of, of an interpretation mm-hmm. of Torah, and um, so you know, you could see maybe perhaps that he he distinguishes between the teaching authority given to all the disciples and the and the yep. uh, power of the keys as being more of an authoritative declaration yep. uh, for the formation of the church given to Peter. Right. He seems right. to be reading reading his own history back into the New Testament fairly clearly. I. <laughs> I, I I agree. I I agree. But that's that's the nature of this era, right? Yeah. Um, you know, because he's he's like, wait, I, and what we why they include in the Reformation con, con, commentaries, Wanda Maldondo, is because he often you can see his apologetic. You can see mm-hmm. how he's defending himself against their attacks. Sure. So that's why he's in here so often. Uh, one of the things that Luke so, points out is that you know, we Protestants tend to want to say that that. Our, our our church structure is based on the New Testament, but our church our church is developed just as much through historical um, development and historical contingencies and things like that as the Roman Catholic Church did. Right, <laughs> and we don't right. want to we I, don't want to admit that you know a lot of us. Well, and both structures are impacted by literally just the social organization that human beings have. Sure, and. That's an interesting thing to process as well, is, is we're very much influenced by simply how we naturally come together and organize things. So in early, you know, obviously the Reformation still is in a time of, of 
kings and yeah. queens and yeah. people that are top down, um, even though there's this kind of ideas about there about other types of models for the church. And so um, all of this ties in to why the church today is in a very different place than it was back then and will never return to where it was because right. society isn't there. Right. I mean, we'll, right. we'll never go back to that structure, right? right? So in the end, I think what is significant about this passage is the clear divide between what will be a Roman Catholic interpretation and a Protestant one. In other passages we've looked at, I will sometimes see some hedging for one side or another to encapsulate the position of the other person. For example, when Luther quotes Romans 3.28 in his defense of salvation by faith alone, the Roman Catholics hedge to claim that their works hinge on also having faith. Mm -hmm. So in other words, they go together. But here there's no such issue. It is really a clear line in the interpretative process. So Zwingli, for example, attacks the Roman Catholic position. He uses this interpretation, quote, And I say to you that you are a man of the rock, and upon the rock I shall build my church. And in his view, the rock for Peter is a solid confession. Again, a confession position. And for Zwingli, the Catholics err when they make Peter the rock instead of faith the rock, after which Peter was named. That's, again, Zwingli's mm -hmm. interpretation. Mm -hmm. All believers, says Zwingli, are grounded in the rock of confession. And he argues further that it, it indeed the church were built on Peter, then it would have tumbled before it began when Peter <laughs> denied Christ. Interesting, yep. Yeah. All right. So I, that's my basic interpretation. But I also wanted to head to a different thing. And I wanted to head back to images today. Um, because I think it, it gives you a sense of, of um, how these keys had been such a prominent part of the identity of the Roman Catholic power. And so if, if, you, if, if you look at the passage, it's, it's, this is prevalent even today in the coat of arms for the papacy. Mm -hmm. And if you look, you can see this imagery includes the concept of the keys of the kingdom. And so if you look at a papal... Um, um, a papal coat of arms, you see the two keys crossed in the middle. They're central to the coat of arms, topped with a papal crown, okay? Um, and this dates way back in the, um, in the tradition. And, of course, the Reformation wanted to break that image and attack this important symbol, and we see it in the woodcut tradition. So knowing the images are so important in this era, um, the... the um, the attacks were um, were very prevalent in the accessible sources. So today I um, picked out a Reformation, an early Reformation woodcut, um, and we'll talk. Alan and I will talk about it here. It's from a broadsheet during the early Reformation. Now broadsheets are some of your first printed materials. They're kind of the tabloid newspapers of the Reformation, if you will. They're quickly printed and distributed on the streets. People gather, they almost always contained woodcut images because people would buy them that didn't necessarily read, mm. but the images is what drew them in so they could, they could interpret the images even if they couldn't understand the words. We believe, although we don't have a lot of, um, of, of proof for this, that sometimes one person who could read might read the words while others would gather around and listen in. And of course they had the image to tell them that was on it. Not unlike if we would see 
um, a McDonald's sign, maybe we can't read it, but we know what that would be, even if we can't read. And if somebody put an extra McDonald's sign, we would know, oh, right. no, McDonald's, right? right. So it's kind right. of like that. So this image today has that papal, um, two keys crossed with the papal crown that was so part of it on the coat of arms. And yet it's broken apart. Um, and so we see um, the keys The keys are broken. We see that on the shafts, one of them has the Pope hanging. The other one has a peasant hanging. And then in the center is Judas. And there's this hand that reaches out grabbing it, suggesting that the, the, the papacy itself has taken over Judas's control of the money and therefore um, has corrupted uh, the church and destroyed the hope of the commoner kind of what we see makes me wonder um, if they were thinking of indulgences there you know in the in the sale of indulgences yes. yeah uh it, well that was part of the complaint and when you talk early reformation the first things that were attacked were the wealth of the church the secular church the wealth of the church the abusive wealth of the church the abusive people it became we think of it as in the church as a religious thing, but it is so much more than a religious thing because it is also a socioeconomic movement. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at reformation in those terms, that's exactly what you're getting here. So yeah, the keys, because that's has these biblical roots, but by here, this attack is almost entirely socioeconomic. Mm. Um, and just reminding you that, you, and, and that's what I keep talking about in this, how we look as interpreters that I tend to see different types of historians veering towards different types of sources. And so you get sometimes an incomplete picture. And as a hymn, as a, someone who studied hymns, this is all accompanied by this wonderful anti-papal <laughs> hymn and signed by, which I totally love. And this, they did this all the time <laughs> because Luther did not write this, but it's signed by Dr. Luther, the cure for the anti-pope, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, yep, they did that stuff all the time. So um, anyway, I think you know, I wanted to point out this image because it shows this, it shows kind of the, the abuse, if you will, of scripture um, to, to kind of create, develop these own things, which aren't just religious. This is a whole movement that takes us from a medieval worldview to modern worldview from a whole socioeconomic shift. Mm -hmm. And it's why the Reformation is so pivotal in the history of the world. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And I think... Um, we would like to talk, especially coming out of the Reformation um, and watching these kind of two camps of which this was, was interpreted, which was kind of a Protestant interpretation and a Roman Catholic in interpretation, which actually has come down to us today. Alan suggested that we look at um, this from Dr. Lutz um, regarding some of his suggestions for how to um, maybe heal this. And so I'm going to let him introduce what Lutz says, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, as I mentioned, Ulrich Lutz has a um, three-volume commentary on Matthew in the Hermeniah series. 
And he has about a seven-page treatise just kind of on an excursus on Peter's role in Matthew's gospel and in the early church and in the history of of the church um, uh, following. Uh, But then he he sort of, and he he really focuses on this idea that, um, um, that, the the role of Peter as the foundational figure of the church envisioned by Matthew here is a role that is a unifying role in the sense that that Peter is the one along with the other apostles who uh, is to uh, proclaim what Jesus commanded them to to do and 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 teach and and so. Um, you know, in a sense, the the unifying factor is is Jesus and his teaching, but the 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 per- persons who are charged with unifying the church around Jesus' teachings uh, are the apostles, and in Matthew's gospel, particularly um, Peter, and and so um, you know um, he he just goes in great depth to try to. Um, understand uh, what this means for us today, especially in light of the fact that, as Christy mentioned, you know, at least since the Reformation, this passage has tended to divide Protestants from, from Catholics. Um, and and he, will, he will say, although I am a Protestant Christian, with all respect for the special character of our sister Catholic Church, I do not want to be silent here since we Protestants, as members of the future visible one holy church, <laughs> are also affected by the shape of the Catholic Church. And so um, since this text does, does not have the same fundamental significance for Protestants, the critical questions must be directed first to the Catholic Church. And, and so one of the things that, that he really wants to, to question um, the Catholic Church is about is um, you know, that, that their view on this is really only their view. <laughs> They seem to be the only ones who um, who take this view on this passage, um, and um, you know the, the question is the question about whether Peter plays this unique role individually or whether he plays it um, as a representative of what all the other apostles are. Uh, and and really plays it as a representative of the church is really kind of ignored. He feels like by by the Catholic Church, um, and so he kind of calls them to task there. You know that you know does their does the Catholic view of you know the 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 role you know the 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 office of Peter uh, interpreted as the papacy really serve the unity of the entire church. And yet he turns on Protestant churches and asks the question as well, whether in addition to, you know, the things that tend to unify, we we tend to unify our denominations around confessions of faith or fundamentals of faith, but whether um, we also need an office of Peter uh, in some sense or a ministry of Peter to embody a lived unity. And I, and, you know, I think about the people who are sometimes the most vocal in our denominations these days, they feel themselves called to exercise what they consider to be a prophetic ministry by mm-hmm. whatever, speaking truth to power or whatever they want to, however they want to frame it. 
But where where is the unifying voice in mm-hmm. the, in the Protestant world? Is the question I think that that Lutz wants to ask. So you've got you've got he's he's sort of questioning both sides, you know, and and you know with, with you know basically is the Pope's ministry of Peter a ministry of Peter for the Roman Catholic part of the church or for the ministry or for the entire Christian church? And of course, mm-hmm. as the as those of us who are not Catholics, we don't experience that. We don't experience, no. you know, the, mm-hmm. the ministry of the Pope as a ministry for the entire mm-hmm. church. And so those of us who are interested in, in, in ecumenical unity, you know, um, um, he, he asked the questions, you know, uh, if, if we felt like we were represented truly by the Pope um, and not judged by the Pope, um, what could happen, you know, in terms of, of a unity for the whole church. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we confess our faith in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Obviously, we don't see the church as one mm-hmm. in our day. And so what would it look like? What would it take for the church to truly be one? Not just individual denominations, not just individual communities of faith, but the whole body of Christ, including both mm-hmm. the Protestant branch and the, and the Catholic branch of the church. Mm-hmm. And I guess we would have to say the East, the Orthodox branch of the church as well. Well, I mean, all Christians, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got Cop- Coptic Christians too. So yeah. uh, in, interest, I think those are interesting points. And um, I mean, I, I love his vision, right? Is that mm-hmm. Peter serves this kind of unifying role. Um, and as, I, as you were talking, I, my mind just kind of went back into Matthew writing this and the role of Peter as he wrote it and, mm-hmm. and kind of Peter's historiosity, if you will. Um, how, how was Peter viewed in early? And I don't know. I mean, during prior to Matthew, I mean, I'm thinking of the imagery coming out in the middle ages, but what about that first, I don't know, 50, 80 years. I mean, Peter, Peter comes up in the New Testament, not just in the Petrine letters, but also in Paul's letters and in Acts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he plays a prominent role. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I think we could say that, you know, Peter plays this role, even though Paul speaks about confronting Peter uh, in, in Antioch over some issues of, of Jewish and Gentile interaction in the church, mm-hmm. you know, Peter, Paul presents himself as being fundamentally on the same page with Peter and Peter being sort of proactively reaching out to, to Paul and, and sort of uniting the two branches of, of the church in that day, the Jewish Christian church and the Gentile mm-hmm. church under Paul. Mm-hmm. And so we, we do see this image of Peter as kind of a... Peter is the one, for example, in the book of Acts, uh, Barnabas... Is the one who introduces Peter, uh, introduces um, Paul to the other disciples, uh, the apostles right, in, right. in Jerusalem after his conversion, and and Paul says that he spent two weeks with Peter. So apparently, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in Galatians one. So apparently, again, you know, uh, um, Paul is recognizing Peter's um, important role in the church. He, uh, he doesn't really draw it out explicitly, but just the fact that mm-hmm. he, he feels like it's necessary to mention that he spent two weeks sort of, right. I think, probably um, learning some of the traditions about Jesus from Peter. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, well, I mean, A, this is just in Matthew. And so when you're 
when you're looking at biblical authority for things, you find it in one gospel. You know, it, it does make me wonder why we're addressing Peter. And I keep wondering if there is some kind of false prophet kind of argument against Peter that's part of Matthew's environment. I, I that that Matthew writes this specifically because he didn't get it from Mark. Mm -hmm. We already said that right. he didn't pick it up from right. Mark. Um, and so I'm curious as to why it's here and why it becomes such a central text when it's only in one of the Gospels. Well, there there is a dynamic later, uh, probably in the second century, in so Clement of Rome was an early church father. He was one of the apostolic fathers, and uh, we have First Clement as one of the major documents in that collection. Um, and um, there were also pseudo-Clementine literature that were written in Clement's name, but later than Clement. And um, mm -hmm. in the pseudo-Clementine literature, there is this um, perceived tension between Peter and Paul. And perhaps right. it goes right. back to this whole episode in Galatians 2 where Paul says that he confronted Peter, you know, with his hypocrisy. And, and you know, a lot of times people take that and they really don't know what to make of it and they, they kind of get really uncomfortable with it. You know, Peter and Paul can't be real human beings who maybe had a falling out for a short time. You know, they've, they've got to be these perfect right. saints, right. right? And so in the pseudo-Clementine literature, there's this whole line of argument about how, you know, Peter and the others spent whatever, all, the whole time of Jesus' public ministry with him, and yet Paul claims to have equal authority with them as apostles on the basis of a vision. And right, so there's right. some, it's, a, it's an anti-Pauline polemic. And, and so apparently, apparently there was a time in, in the church where... Um, and I don't know, I don't know all the details about the origins of the pseudo-Clementines. You know, apparently there was a time when there was some segment of the church that, that really latched onto Paul to the exclusion of others, probably right. in a way that Paul would not himself endorse. And, um, um, there was a need felt to reassert the, um, maybe the primacy or at least the, um, the legitimacy of the original apostles. And that might be something that's reflected here is sort of this emphasis in the church of Matthew's day on mm -hmm. the role of the original apostles in establishing right. the traditions and, and the teachings that they used basically as the basis for their faith. That interpretation actually is very interesting. And that, that then to me provides it that much more Oh, unifying kind of role, um, especially unifying. And you're right, as I'm thinking about Paul, and he must have been such a charismatic fellow, and perhaps more so than than Peter. I don't know, mm -hmm. but um, uh, that uh, yeah, that to reestablish kind of the apostolic um, importance, I think, is right. probably and somebody who obviously takes on a very important role in the church. Um, well, I would say that probably. Whatever it was that was behind this was a misunderstanding. I really don't, I, you know, based on my study of Paul, um, I don't see a lot of evidence for any real uh, conflict 
between Paul and the Twelve or right. between Paul and the, right. and the apostles in Jerusalem. Um, I think what happened was more that there were people uh, in the churches who claimed either to be loyal to Peter or loyal right. to Paul. We see this, you know, in First right. Corinthians, for example, I belong to, to Cephas. Right, that's what Peter. I was talking about. I, I belong, belong to, to Paul. I belong, I belong to Apollos. You know, and and right. and so you know the factions in the church at Corinth. Paul didn't encourage those. They, no, they were they didn't. were misun based on misunderstandings by the people in the church at Corinth. <laughs> and right. so I, I think Paul and Peter were probably more on the same page than than they were given credit for at times. I I think so too, but it's those kind of discussions that make me wonder about Matthew's inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, of this specific topic. So I find it really, really interesting. And well, well, I, I really love Lutz's um, question marks here. I feel like it seems to be going out on this. I, I, again, in some ways, he's confronting the issue that's brought up during the Reformation and before as to what the division is. And to me, it seems like we're still making a mountain out of a molehill. And I feel like I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm. Comf I mean, I like his general premise. I'm just not sure that basing it on this scripture is necessarily yeah. any better than what we had before, because I think it's an outlier. Well, I don't. It is an outlier. It is not. It's not an outlier in Matthew, but Matthew is an outlier in this respect. However, yeah. I, you know, I think the thing that makes the most sense to me is the analogy of the beloved disciples' role in the Johannian community and Paul's role in the churches that he founded. And, and apparently Peter played um, uh, an influential role in, in the communities that, that were influenced by Matthew's gospel. You know, the funny mm -hmm. thing is... Right, right, yes, that's, I agree. Yeah. According, according to the tradition, Mark basically wrote the preaching of Peter. And so the assumption is, well, Mark was a disciple of Peter. Mark left out the story of Peter faltering on the water because Mark didn't want to embarrass Peter, but Matthew kind of put it all in. That's, that's a false assumption. The, the, I, what, what, what we see is this is one example of Matthew's focus on Peter and the special, unique role that Peter has, apparently, in the, math, in, in the community um, yeah. influenced by Matthew's gospel. So Matthew yes. is the typical apostle. He's the typical disciple. He, he's, he, he, he speaks for the others. He steps out on the water, but then he falters, right? And so mm -hmm. he, is, he is this man of little faith who nevertheless is blessed because he has right. ears to hear and eyes to see, right? Right, right, and right. And because he makes right. this confession of Jesus which is no different from the confession that the other disciples have made. But in, a, in, in for some reason, you know, Matthew, um, in Matthew's community, it was important that, that Peter be singled out for special recognition in terms of his role. And so apparently Peter must have played some sort of special role in, in the community that, that was influenced by Matthew's gospel. And mm -hmm. that's, that makes mm -hmm. the most sense to me. Yeah. Now, what what yeah, happens in the New Testament era and in, in the days of Matthew's gospel? Now, what happens then is at, in the post-apostolic period, Matthew plays such an important role. Matthew becomes the preeminent gospel so that whatever Matthew's view on right. things in almost right. becomes the view, right, right for well, the whole church. Exactly. 
Yeah. And so the from there, the then Peter becomes this um, unique um, uh, person, you know, plays this unique yeah. role for the whole church. Right. And then takes a role that becomes elevated really above others. And then the Roman Catholic Church spins off of that. Right. I mean, if we, and, Peter and is from, the first pope. At least and from that, at least from Lutz's at least from Lutz's survey of the of the of the church tradition, um, it was primarily the popes who stressed that before the Reformation. Exactly. Yeah, oh absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Even even in even in Catholic commentators, they weren't they they were arguing against it. Exactly. So what an interesting piece. But yeah. again, that was establishing their legitimacy. Right. Right? right, and that that legitimacy, the, the kings are doing the same thing, mm -hmm. and so that's a kind of a and and uh, and that gets us to this point. So, it and at the end, you know, I'm thinking about preaching this thing. I I I think our I think this detail of talking about Matthew's community, talking about you know this emphasis of Peter, I I think that goes over their heads. So at the end of the day, I want to think about how do we preach this that is really helpful. Yeah. Well, and I, to me, I think one, one avenue of preaching is obvious, and that is, you know, Jesus promises to build his church, or at least Matthew's right. Jesus promises to build his church. That's one avenue right. that's, that's, that's productive. I think another right. avenue that could be productive, though, is the idea that, you know, Peter is representative of all the apostles here, and it, and it really is true for the church as a whole that the apostolic the teaching of the apostles, which is embodied in the New Testament, becomes the foundation for the church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe, I mean, to me, that's something we're losing, I think. Because right. people, people, people are so... People are so detached from Scripture. They have such a minimal understanding of even the New Testament that, you know, it, it, I don't think... Most people, even in a Presbyterian church, I don't think you could come up to most people and say, "You know, what is what is your theological reason for being in this church?" And they'd say, "I don't <laughs> no. have one. I'm here because this is where my parents brought me, or this is where I grew up, or the, uh, this is because this is where my spouse goes." You know, right. and and um, they don't, they can't, they can't tell you a reason in terms of a, of a theological or even a biblical point that 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 brings that up. And so, you know. Mm -hmm. We, we're losing that, that apostolic part of the church. We're losing that yeah. foundation of the church. And, and so perhaps, perhaps it could be a call to return to, to uh, the New Testament as the foundation for our faith. And, and we just, I mean, if we, if we can't answer the question, why am I here? Then we need to look to the New Testament and find that answer. Right. Yeah, no, that's a really good angle for this. Um, I think I... I'm actually probably not preaching this. Um, I'm on a, um, I'm on a sermon series, but yeah, I think, why are you here? This provides mm -hmm. you with, that would be a really fun way to do that. I've been in, I'm in a new church. I've been in conversations with folks. I asked them, um, I asked them this week, what, um, who we are basically, what, who are we? And, I've been asking this in a group of small groups, and very few of them can identify what our what our core values are. Yeah. Um, and even of those who said our core values, none of them said biblical 
foundation. None of them said that, mm. which is interesting for a Christian church to to say that. Well, so we I would, have a lot of work to do. I would say to some extent that's true in denominations as well. That's not just mm-hmm. true in churches. That's true in denominations. We're looking, yeah. we're looking for what is our purpose, what is our reason for being here, and we're not necessarily mm-hmm. looking to scripture for that answer. We're looking to yeah. causes and 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 advocacy and things like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And for many people, I think the church is that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think their 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 responses were insincere. And at the same time, I hear biblical preaching, but I'm asking the question: But what are you hearing? What are you coming home with? So. That's actually a really, I like that approach to, um, to preaching this and staying away from kind of the proof text nature that it has yeah, taken right, right. Um, and the kind of trying to prove that's not what it says approach. I think right. that's not helpful. No. As you said, it should be a unifying, should be a unifying scripture. Sure. And to me, and, um, you know, even a, um, even, even a pivotal scripture for that potentially yeah yep all right thanks all right thank you that's our podcast for today if you heard something that was helpful to you please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us it's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of christ we hope you'll tune in next week and in the meantime let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word